thank you so much, Jonathan, for coming on and taking the time out. No, not at all. Thank you so much for having me on. I um I was telling you earlier I had a um interview with the BBC like a month ago and this is like entirely more nerve wracking. Um <laughs> I, I consider this I consider this platform much more important. Oh well, thank you so much. Um but can you tell me about where you grew up and what you ate? Yeah, um, so I grew up in um, a place called uh, called Stoke Newington in the borough of Hackney in London. Um, I guess, like for an American audience, like the analog of that would be something like, um, I guess, like some parts of uh, Brooklyn. I remember when I was in New York, actually, I was walking um, uh, in Greenpoint. I was like, this is like exactly like Stony Winton High Street. It's like kind of uncanny. Like if you take if you sort of took away all like the New York signifiers, like it, it could be the same place. Um right. but it's I mean Hackney's a very interesting borough. It's been historically and still is actually a poor borough. Um and um it has a very um a very big Muslim community, a big Orthodox Jewish community, um, a very large black community as well. Um, and it's undergone like, immense changes like, over the last 20 years. Um, it, I mean, this is a story of most cities, but like, a lot of gentrification. Um, it was also um, sort of in the eastern end is where the, the London Olympics uh took place and so you had like a huge amount of regeneration going over there um but then where i grew up stone newington because it's had such a strong orthodox jewish community and it's always kind of been the bohemian part of hackney anyway i think it's undergone less change than than other areas um and uh, it's kind of stayed very similar to what i remember um, but I, I sort of grew up between there and um, uh, Manor House, um, which is uh, not that far away. But my both my mum and my dad um, grew up in the same estate there, and so we always had um, the uh, both our sets of family there. So my dad is um, my dad is uh, white Londoner, um, and my mum is uh, my mum. Uh, emigrated here um, when she was 15 um, from Kenya but the my family on my mother's side is originally from Goa um, so that I guess that kind of informed what I ate growing up which definitely wasn't um, definitely wasn't all Goan food um, but it was um, I guess because I, I because Goa has always been a um, it's it's a predominantly Catholic state, um, and because I never um, learnt the language, um, which is spoken in Go, which is Konkani, uh, mainly because there aren't really enough Goans uh, in London for me. When I, when I was offered the chance to do it as a child, I, I didn't take it up because um, it wasn't really, and it doesn't have a huge amount of context within London. Um, I guess like food then became like the only sort of uh, the only sort of or the main um, 
the main way that I could like, access uh, going identity because I couldn't really do it through religion because uh, it's not uh, go is not um, uh, most goings in London aren't Hindu or Muslim they're Catholic um, and yeah I didn't speak the language so I guess food became an important part of um, my identity that way um, but yeah I on a, just like another note like, I think I've always had trouble with um, sort of just identifying yourself through food. I think that's like, it can be like a lazy way for like second generation immigrants to talk about like their culture and like what actually goes on like back in their, their home countries. Um, Like I know like there was lots of discussion in America about like many Indians not like speaking out about the CAA um, and the situation that was going on uh, in India with the rise of Modi, um, and but but sort of like using their using their identity, um, using the ident- using their um, using their identity just to talk about food when there's obviously food is just one small aspect of the culture. So I'm always wary of. Um, sort of just talking about my goingness or my Indianness in, t- in terms of food and yeah, trying to um, sort of interrogate that sometimes. Right. Well, American food um, media certainly. Yeah, no, it, it, it kind of, um, yeah, it, it forces a commodification of one's culture through food, I would say. I don't know if you felt yes. that same pressure. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but for me, for me, not so much, I I guess, because um, I've never really felt the need to perform my identity through food too much. I've not written a huge amount about, um, I've only written one article for Taste, which is specifically about, um, about a Goan dish. And I I will, I'm writing something about Goa sausage at the moment, but I'm going to make, I'm going to try to sort of do the interrogation which I maybe didn't do in the in the taste article um but um but yeah I, I'm always wary about um about that aspect and, and even with vittles as well I don't want um of course I am platforming more diverse voices and talking about having people talk about their cuisines but I don't want that just to be the end point of um right. of what uh of what writers can talk about um but yeah i mean so, so i grew up in st newton and then and then after that uh, my family moved to bounds green which is in the north of london um so it, it's kind of like a nothing area where nothing really happens um but there is a it's no nowhere near as interesting as as hackney but there is a big uh a big greek cypriot community there um which was like a big part of um, how I ate, but wasn't really covered um, at all, sort of in, in my experience in the in the media. And then I I went to school, sort of right on the border of um, the border of London. So it's right by you could hear the M25, um, which is London's periphery road, um, and kind of like divides London from not London um, from the school. So traveling um 
sort of traveling one traveling was like a really big thing so I, I would get it would be like an hour bus journey every day but also I guess kind of my idea of London um was maybe a bit more um I guess like a bit more expansive maybe than than others right um yeah just because I, I spent so much time um so much time traveling in quite a sort of like suburban um a suburban part of it right. And you mentioned Vittles, which is the near daily newsletter that you run. Um, You started this during the pandemic, I believe. Um, What was the inspiration there? I think when I started, I I just told everyone that I was bored um, and had nothing (laughs) to do, which was true. But um, it it was it was something it, it wasn't something that just came from the pandemic, although that was like the impetus to do it. Um, it had been something I'd been thinking about, not that specific project, but the idea of, um, the idea of having a space where, which wasn't owned by a sort of big media conglomerate, um, and, and a space to, uh, yeah, a space to, talk about issues which weren't being covered within um within mainstream media and um mm-hmm. and also yes, I also I guess like the idea of being able to own my work as well um so yeah. I, mean, I was talking about the t-shirt and one of the the writers who who's a, a regular is actually Nigel Slater and he mm-hmm. told me like very early on uh when I was food writing to like, make sure you own your work and and, and make sure you like, it's great that you're you're doing all this, but like try and like find your own way um, as well. And I guess that was, and that and some sort of pressure from my boss as well um, was kind of like the impetus to actually do something myself. Um, and I mean, it's very it's very difficult. I think if you're a food writer in the UK to have um, to have spaces that want to take on your writing, um, you feel that you have something. Um, something important to say, especially something political to say as well. And I, I think if, if you're on, if you're a writer and you, you kind of have leftist politics in the UK, you've got you've got about six or seven papers um, which publish food writing. Um, most of them are uh, are right wing or owned by Rupert Murdoch. Um, I guess like the the only left leaning one um is really uh the guardian and like the guardian has its own issues as well um like really big issues and then (laughs) if you want to write outside of that you i guess you have um you have vice which again some people might not want to write for and then you have eater london as well and eaters are very um eaters are very um a new thing for the UK. I think it opened two thousand seventeen, um, okay. and I, although like Eat is not a particularly radical publication, I think in the context of the British, um, of the British sort of food writing, um, food writing system, it uh, it automatically became like the alternative, um, okay. and I, I think what that alternative is has actually changed quite a lot um 
over the sort of life cycle of Beta London so far. Um, I think it's in a much stronger stronger space than um, than when it started. And I think that's yeah mainly down to with Adam and James's um, James's editorship. Um, but yeah, um, Vittles have been something I've been thinking about, and I yeah the the pandemic was just. I was like, well, now I've, I'm furloughed. Like, I can't write about restaurants because there aren't any restaurants open to write about. Like, this is the time to actually start it up. Um, and uh, I've I've been really taken aback by the reaction to it, actually, because um, I I expected it to be something something small um, and something um, that would prove a uh, sort of like welcome diversion from um, from what was going on, and for people to sort of try new things out. Um, if they if they were chefs who wanted to to write, or first time writers who wanted to do something, and I know it's event. I like to be mentioned in like the San Francisco Chronicle yesterday was just like a bit astonishing for me because I I didn't expect it to to get to like anywhere near that point. Um, and now I have to, I have to, I'm probably going to go back to work next month, but I really have to think about how, um, like the future of the newsletter, whether it stays a newsletter or becomes something else. But it, it seems like, it seems like it would be a huge waste if, I know you've got all this energy and all these, um, all these amazing writers, either writers who, were already writing but wanted to change the direction of their work or people who wanted to get into food writing um it'd be um it'd be really great for that con- to continue um well after the pandemic but i just i i really don't think much about i i it seems like i put like a huge amount of thought into everything yet i i really don't yeah. know what i'm doing um, yeah and, um, <laughs> i i need to I really, I like, I really don't know what I'm doing. Um, like every everything is ad hoc. I mean, I write, um, I write everything every morning, um, and sometimes don't know what I'm going to send out. But um, it all seems to kind of come together um, in the end. Um, but I, I guess I need to start thinking um, about actual sort of structures and and uh, like ways of funding to make it continue. Right. Well, yeah, it doesn't look thrown together and, and ad hoc, but I do think that the best things that people make are the ones that they just kind of start doing without, you know, without considering all the all the angles and making spreadsheets and that sort of thing. Like, <laughs> I think uh, and I think that it's been something sorely missing from from food media, obviously. I mean, I mean, we could talk about Bon Appetit all day, but um for you, like, what is a vital story when, when someone sends a pitch and it lands in your inbox and you read it, like what makes you understand that Vittles is the right place for it? Um, I think that has changed over the lifetime of Vittles, which is still only three months. Um, like really in the beginning, I accepted everything. Um, uh, and it was just really, really lucky that everything that, um, was pitch was actually really good. Um, it was sort of a mixture of um, it was a mixture of friends or p- 
people who followed me on Twitter or um, people who I had been following and contacted to, because I thought that they might want to, to write something. Um, and then as it's gone on, I guess I, it's, um, it's found its way outside of that um, sphere that I was in and who knew that I set it up. So it, it, it went, um, it, it sort of quickly went on to um, like, even like freelancers newsletters who um, sort mm-hmm. of had no idea about like what Vittles was or, or why it was set up. Um, and um, I get that was actually a really big, um, a really big learning experience for me because um, getting, um, getting like proper pic- pictures as if I was like a real publication, it, it was like really eye opening to um into what freelancers no- are normally like taught to pitch like which, which is something I've not really had experience with myself um and like I, ha- I had all these pictures from experienced people yet they were nowhere near as interesting as the pictures I was getting from first-time writers um and I think I guess I, I think people have become um, quite used to pitching things which like don't grapple with like politics or policy, um, and I had to like explain like this is like not quite yeah this is not why this is not why I want. Um, whereas, or uh, well, they seem like quite. Um, they seemed like quite opportunistic. They weren't coming from places of knowledge. They were just sort of things that it, I felt that it, they had just thought of and tried to make into a, a story. Whereas the the pictures I was getting from first time writers were coming from a place of knowledge. They were really engaged. Um, they were personal, but they weren't self indulgent, which I think can be the the um, the worst thing about sort of first person personal writing um they they were using a way of sort of extrapolating their personal experience to um to a wider experience and to um to to something um to something um something political um and i know they they seem to have they had something to say i guess um i think this what your your newsletter um your newsletter uh, yesterday actually like was so um, summed up like so much that I've been trying to think about and put into words about um, about the role of um, the role of food medium and what even what the point is of the, of food writing in the first place because um, there is such there seems to be such a dearth of of people who have something to say um, sometimes in food writing um, and I. Yeah, the great thing about um, about receiving all these pitches is that it turns out there are there are loads of people who do have something to say um, and just haven't really been given the opportunity to to say it yet. Um, yeah. But yeah, I guess um, I guess I I set up some sort of structures around um, the articles I wanted. Um, wanted to see to make it easier so 
obviously I had um, I I have a section for recipe writing, um, but I want them to be recipes which um, recipes which actually like tell a story or are from um, from unheard chefs or uh, recipes that you wouldn't necessarily find like in the in a broadsheet paper. Um, and I guess in that I guess in that section, like the most like obvious analog, I guess would be something like tape. Um, in the US, mm-hmm. like uh, where re- there is like essentially a recipe site, but all of them c- they come with something more than that. Um, and then um, because like it was the, all the articles so far up to, with the angle of the pandemic, I would I had like long term projects because you know there are people who want to get into like things like fermenting or foraging or baking or um, I really want to write a tea guide one day. Um, when I have the time um, to, to tell you why uh, you should definitely get into tea and get into really good tea. Um, and I wanted, uh, I've got a section for restaurants, but I really wanted um, like not obviously not restaurant reviews, but pieces which would be really sort of critical about the state of the restaurant industry. Um, and uh, I've got a section for shopping guides or for food shops because the way that I, I I'm fairly well versed on London's restaurants and um, and the the different diaspora communities that are spread across London which use them. But because I didn't do a huge amount of cooking before the pandemic started, I wasn't I really like have was not clued up at all about um, about food shops and shopping. So mm-hmm. uh, I wanted writers to sort of use use those shops to tell their own story of um, of their life in London, and um, I know that hopefully uh, hopefully get more different people sort of shopping there and it open their eyes up to sort of different ways of living in, in London. Um, and then the last one was essays, which I guess is like anything that doesn't fit in. Um, but I, I guess one those pieces I want to be, I want to be quite politically engaged, and from people who, um, people who really know their stuff, um, have done their research, have maybe been like working within that industry as well, um, and and haven't had a kind of mainstream platform to say something like a lot I know a lot of people have either come in from academia and sort of wanted a way of sort of um sort of simplifying like very complex ideas um for like a more mainstream audience or like for, for some of them it's come from um for example with the Greg's um article from uh experience of working um with it in a really low paid um a low paid hospitality job um and and being able to talk about their experience um but i don't know i i didn't really i feel like all of this makes it sound like i i thought a lot about what i want a vital story to be but i know it 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 just it just feels like that's what i wanted to that's what I felt was missing um, from 
lots of the British food media and it's, it's really just stuff that I wanted to read whether it's um whether it's the more um whether it's the more fun pieces or the, or the serious pieces I think it's it's really um really important to have a mix of both so you don't you don't become too po-faced but you also don't become just toothless at the same time I guess Right, right, right. No, it's interesting what you pointed out about the pitches that you were getting and how they, the way people are kind of, I think, beaten down into <laughs> believing that, you know, the, the least interesting aspect of a story is the, the one that'll sell. And, and just, yeah, how we just learn to become marketers for ideas rather than writers. And, and we don't think, and I, I think that your newsletter and as we were talking about before we started recording, like the, the time that we've had to think lately has has made this kind of a period of unlearning, I'd say, around around you know what what we should be doing and what we should be talking about, which is, you know, the you know, hopefully has some some resonance even after things start to be a little bit more normal. Um, but yeah, yeah absolutely no, it's, it's I, I like really don't want to be I really don't want to be like harsh on um harsh on like freelancers because I, I I do think it's true what you're saying it's something that's been learned over over time and like it that can also like very easily be unlearned as well um it, it's just that so much of the food writing that gets published in this country um is like incredibly I know it's just incredibly asinine, um, and it's a form of lifestyle writing. And like, I, I really, like, I'm, I'm again like coming from a, a place of like huge privilege in that I haven't had to rely on writing as my main form of income. So I, I've been really lucky that I've been able to choose what I want to want to write about. But that is not something right. um, a lot of um, a lot of people in the industry have, and like it, they have essentially have to live um and take on um take on um sort of fairly dull commissions and and that's kind of like a that's not something that i've i've um i've been used to myself um but i think um i know i think it can be unlearned um and i think yeah what's been really like refreshing is to to have stuff from people who who haven't been beaten down like that and still um i guess even if they haven't written before and they're not um they're not stylistically great writers or they're not like like very efficient writers i don't think that's anywhere near as important as just having a really interesting um a really interesting perspective of something to say like you can you can edit that into um into something that works but you can't edit the other way around like you can't edit something which has nothing to say into into something good no matter how well it's written yeah that's I've talked about this with Layla Schlack I don't know if we had this conversation on when I had her on the newsletter podcast whatever this is but I we've talked about this before how it's just laziness on the part of so many editors who have these jobs where they work with the same people over and over again because they know, you know, they'll turn in good copy or whatever, but it's like, then all we do is read the same stale shit because 
you know, someone at, at a big newspaper is just too lazy to really do their job and find new writers and be open to new voices and really working with people's writing, which is so depressing. But um, that's why it's so nice to have spaces like Biddle's where, where that's actually happening. Um, but yeah, you, you, you mentioned yeah. that you, you haven't had to rely on, on writing as your job, but I, I don't know if this is true, but I, I was like, when I was writing the questions, I was, I was like, you're kind of famous, right? For your, your list of value restaurants and reframing the concept of cheap eats for Eater London. And I was wondering if you could give some insight into your, your methodology for, for tackling such a massive city and, and how you be have become fluent in so many cuisines, which is certainly something lacking a lot of the time in, in food, food writing. Yeah. Um, so I guess like the, the, um, the, the list, well, one, um, I didn't like set out to, to sort of pump out <laughs> this, but that is kind of like as the bread and butter of like what Eater London do. So, I mean, I, I was, um, I, I'd always wanted to write, um, for a long time. I'd, I'd been thinking about writing about food and I, I hadn't written anything before. And I was like, for like years, I, I would like talk about it to people and say like, I really want to, um, I really want to write something, but I, I have nothing, nothing to show people. And I, I was like very, um, I really had no confidence in in myself. And even when E to London started, I, I didn't submit them anything because I, I really had no CV of of any sort. Um, my degree was actually in maths, um, mm. uh, a degree that I really hated actually. Um, and um, had kind of spent, spent um, the like the next sort of seven, eight years trying to do something else and escape it. Um, but yeah, I, I I really only got into uh, I only got an opportunity to eat in London through luck. One of the, the writers there, George Reynolds, um, uh, was a fan of. Um, some of my more um, uh, some of my more uh, unkind tweets about Jamie Oliver, um, <laughs> and saw uh, I um, saw I uh, had gone to I think I, like one day I'd gone to Kingsbury, which is the, this um, this area of London with a big uh, Gujarati community, and I, I was there to pick up some mangoes and some mitai. And he just DM'd me saying like, um, I I see you like seem to know a bit about food. Like, have you thought about writing for Eater London? Um, and I was kind of like, uh, trying not to sound too excited because that was kind of like <laughs> what I really wanted to do. Um, and I, I think like literally the next day I submitted like a, a capsule review, and then Adam um really liked it and said do you want to write a map um and so that's how um I guess that's how the list started um and but like from the beginning like I wanted to use the idea of a list to try and do something a bit more um than what the format normally allowed so um mm -hmm. I guess the, the first thing I did was um uh a, a list of um 
uh, restaurants in Green Lanes, which is a street which is really which I, I um, grew up near and has always been um, a really big part of um, a big part of my life, uh, and is home to um, really amazing amazing Turkish, Kurdish, and Turkish Cypriot restaurants. Um, and I, I was trying to write that through kind of the lens of um, of immigration and how and immigration waves um, and how this has affected the food. Um, and I know it, it's, it really took off and I, I guess I was really lucky that I had, I already had a um, ready-made um, platform on Twitter of, I, I sort of was generally just shit posting on left Twitter um, but it was also kind of the right audience as well kind of stuff it was I really didn't want like a foodie audience um, I, I sort of wanted an audience of politically engaged people who who like food um, but then with with the best value project that was kind of everything that I really set out to say at the beginning of my career like um, mm-hmm. I wanted to um, when, when I started writing like I wanted to come up with a kind of canon of restaurants which represented a different vision of London to what was normally um, was normally projected by the food media. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, I guess that image of London is um, written by like, mainly written by affluent right food writers um influenced by affluent white prs like mainly representing um mainly white but like maybe at a push sort of east asian or indian restaurant owners um all of which have investment from like extremely affluent white investors um and like all for an audience which is always presumed to be um, affluent and white as well. And mm-hmm. none of this has ever tallied or conform with my experience of London. Um, it, it seemed to like completely, um, completely sort of ignore and sidestep everything that I found interesting about um, London as a city, actually. Um, and I would, I would actually say that... Um, I see myself actually as much of a city writer as a food writer. I think most mm-hmm. of my food writing is just a way for me to to talk about um, to talk about London and to talk about different experiences of London. Um, and like, there are a huge amount of problems with lists, but um, I think like the and and like ranking things. But I think like mm-hmm. the power of a good canon is to sort of change um, perceptions of what um what is important and what should be written about and i guess because there wasn't although that there has been this kind of writing in in the uk before for the last sort of 10 15 years ago it definitely hasn't um existed in the mainstream so i thought it was important to put out a really um a really well argued um and sort of like overwhelming um overwhelming list to kind of make the um to make the case for these restaurants that there, there is like such a, um, there's such a wealth of, um, 
different communities and different experiences that are going on um and all of which um all of which aren't being covered um and best value was like kind of a way to smuggle that idea um into into eater although um with with um I, I think adam knew really what i was aiming for right from the beginning um but it was, it was kind of like cheap eats has only been the, the place to to talk about this kind of stuff and cheap mm-hmm. eats is a is a kind of it's a phrase that I, I hate anyway um although i've been guilty of i think in the past talking about cheapness too much um mm-hmm. but it was it was a way to um it was a way it was a way to reflect my experience of london and also to um to talk about restaurants that have a lot of context within the history of london as well so to to talk about um to talk about its immigration patterns like first of all like it's um it's colonial immigration patterns so which means like advocating for um the restaurants restaurants um owned by um by caribbean londoners by west african um and east african londoners by not just rich indians but also pakistanis mm-hmm. and bangladeshi um restaurants as well um which um which are, which are nowhere near as um as um closely covered um by food media as their indian counterparts um and um and also to i know to cut it's it's interesting i find that um the relationship between british food media and american food media is very strange like i i do think that um we we do look up to you in a way um <laughs> and um whether it's the younger generation who um i feel like a, a younger generation of food writers uh like probably reading like soleil and tejao and um patricia and um Ligue Michan at New York Times if they want to read restaurant writing maybe over our own restaurant writers um mm-hmm. I think if they're ever they're probably reading like Mayuk and yourself and and uh Tunde um and so so there there is that I I guess like a feeling that um American food media is a lot more advanced but even um even from i guess like an um not necessarily a different generation but like a different type of food writer um even if they don't think that american food media is that influential on them i think that the idea of what is important um in terms of definitely when it comes to what is important to write about i think it's definitely informed by american food media so obviously within america you have um a huge amount of context for talking about sort of mainland chinese cuisine and japanese cuisine and and korean and um and mexican um and over here those have definitely become things which the the mainstream media wants to talk about a lot more but that's kind of at, been at the expense of restaurants and and cuisines which have a huge amount of context within london but they they've never really had um 
they've never really had people advocating for them that they're they're important um so a part part of it was um to redress that balance as well so i i, I really didn't want a list that kind of had the same demographics as a, as a list in New York or a list in Los Angeles. Like it had to be something that um, was also reflective of London, um, yeah. especially since colonialism has massively shaped those cuisines as well. Like their right. cuisines with, with like a, a huge amount of context um, in British history. Um, right. But then, then you also have the newer, uh, the newer um, restaurants um reflected by by newer waves of immigration so um that was kind of um i guess what i was writing about with the uh the old kent road piece um yesterday but it was really um yeah the um a, w- a way of of getting all those ideas like underneath the banner of a list that people could right. also enjoy um and in terms of how I write about those restaurants, um, I guess it's a it's a mixture of um, um, like I think googling um, and, and using the internet only takes you so far. That can be a useful tool, but um, I, I honestly think like the, the two the two best ways of doing it are one just walking. Um, like there are whole. Um, like before the pandemic, I would spend like a weekend, like walking through, just walking through areas of London, um, and um, and and just seeing what what was there. Um, and um, I think it was Jonathan Gold who who talked about going into like a fugue state um, when he was sort of driving yeah. around in his his car through Los Angeles. And I think like there is, there is that element of like obsessiveness to. Um, my writing as um or, or sort of my method um as well um except it is mainly walking rather than driving <laughs> drive. um, and um but no but the, the most important thing is, is just to keep talking to people um uh talk, talk to as many people as you can talk to um talk to fellow food writers talk to the talk to the chefs talk to people who have absolutely no connection to food but um uh we'll have something useful to say like honestly like the amount of recommendations we've just come from um i normally have to take an addison lee um between Mm -hmm. um work and uh my warehouse i don't know if addison lee exists in the u.s but it's a a taxi company um and just talking to addison lee drivers and talking to them about food (laughs) Um, because most of the drivers are, are recent um, recent immigrants um, anyway, um, and you you always get uh, you always seem to get like a, a recommendation for something which you probably never would have um, found otherwise. Um, but I get that's also been um, what you were saying about like how how I become fluent in these cuisines so quickly. Like, mm-hmm. I guess the answer to that is that I, I have, and I think as <laughs> restaurant writers, we all, we all try and pretend that we, we're clued up on everything. Um, and I think what there needs to be is more admissions of, um, admissions of um, a lack of knowledge because um, mm-hmm. no one can be an expert on everything. Um, and if you do have a, 
a lack of knowledge about a cuisine, I think the best way of um, of remedying that is not to pretend that you do or just to read a Wikipedia article. I think right. um, to to actually sort of platform people through your through your writings, um, and this is something that I I was about to do with. I was scheduled to write a rewrite of the best um, value project this year. Um, and what I really want to do is to, um, instead of having me as like the all-knowing, um, the all-knowing uh, author, is to really open up the whole project to to other um, to other writers and perspectives, um, especially mm-hmm. people from those communities who, um, yeah, talk about what that restaurant means to them. Um, rather and. Honestly, I think you 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 get a more a much more um a much more interesting perspective um that way and um I've seen it a little bit of it in British restaurant criticism um I I really think like the best the best um restaurant uh critic review in like the last year was um when uh, the musician Stormzy edited um an edition of the observer magazine and he just took um the observer critic jay rayner to a a local um caribbean cafe of his in south london and he just it was mainly platforming stormzy to talk about how what the food meant to him um and what it meant to his community i i think that's um it's like such a richer way of um of talking about um of talking about restaurants um, I guess it requires you to give up a bit of um, a bit of your power and a bit of your um, your image as um, as as an expert. Right. No, that's that's such an important point that that we don't let go of authority enough <laughs> in in writing and and I think that's also you know that's also a product of of these weird editorial visions. Like I just wrote a piece for a big general interest magazine in in the States. And my editor kept being like, there's not enough of you in here. Just, just make it you. And I'm like, but I'm drawing on like so much work, but I have to present it as though it's just coming from my brain. And I'm like, I'm so uncomfortable, (laughs) but that's kind of, no, I I hate it. Yeah. Yeah, it's just so strange. It's like, but I'm citing so years and years of thought, and, and <laughs> but it's like we don't want that. <laughs> we don't want the thought. We just wanted, you know, this kind of like bloviating character. Um, but that's that's the problem with op-eds, I guess. But um, it's kind of where I'm finding my footing, sadly enough. But um, you mentioned that that in your work lately, you've been focusing on what the restaurant can be and represent beyond being a business. Um, that most recent piece for Eater London, you mentioned about the restaurant community versus the restaurant industry of Old Kent Road and how these mainly immigrant run restaurants have become hubs for their diasporas and more during the pandemic. Um, and yeah, you talk about how industry is a cold world, cold, cold word, and the responsibility of writers to see beyond the PR machines. And yeah, I think this is something a lot of us were thinking about before the pandemic, but now we're kind of allowed to talk about it more openly, which is, that's something I've noticed, which is like, if something terrible happens, like you're, you're finally allowed to like talk about how things actually are. It's something that happened with 
the the hurricane here in Puerto Rico, where it's like writers were allowed to talk about how it's a colony of the United States only after there was a big disaster, um, which is now we're seeing that also yeah. happen with the pandemic in different ways. Um, but why do you think that this has been kind of a moment of reckoning, not just for restaurants, but for food media? And how how do you hope to see it continue into a future where, you know, hopefully we're not just opening up for the sake of the economy, but there's actually a vaccine and we can go out again and feel safe? Um, yeah, it's a big question. Um, big, yeah. <laughs> I, I think, I, I think the, the pandemic has been like such a it's like horrible that it's had to happen this way but I think it's it's been like such a vindication for for writers who were talking who were trying to talk about this before the pandemic and I I Mm -hmm. actually wouldn't consider myself um I I, although I I was talking about some things I definitely wouldn't group myself in in those writers I I think um there's been so many writers I including yourself who we're talking about these structural issues way before um beforehand um and i think it's been it's been such um it's been such vindication for them because now now they're they're writing um that they've really put in the work to um to now be able to talk about these kind of things with authority and say this is this is the stuff that we knew was wrong before the pandemic and, um, and, and these are possible solutions to fix it. But, um, I think people, people, some people's eyes have been opened, but I think it's not, I think it's not been a case of eyes being open. I think people knew it all along. It's just that mm-hmm. now, um, people suddenly have the opportunity to say it without looking like they're kind of pissing on everyone's parade. Um, I I guess like the especially in London, like London was enjoying such a amazing boom in restaurants, like ever since um, sort of the recovery from the two thousand eight crisis. Um, like the the industry has just kept growing and growing and growing. Um, and the I guess the industry said to itself, like as long as we we keep growing and growing, like and more restaurants keep opening and um more launch parties and the more money it's making for people um certainly higher up the system rather than lower down the system the more the the better it is and kind of talking about the 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 london food restaurant industry as sort of this world-class product and um i think i think I think the the chef certainly like knew that it this wasn't the case like from from what I can from what I know about um my experience of talking to chefs before the pandemic and also after they knew that this wasn't sustainable they knew that the the image of the London restaurant industry that was being built up mainly by by writers and by PR um wasn't um wasn't true um because none of them were really making money themselves or or they weren't they weren't able to to cook the stuff they really wanted um 
so what was really surprising to me, like when I wrote um, my first Guardian piece, which was kind of about this whole issue, um, I was expecting much more of a blowback from people within the industry, like basically saying that kind of like, oh, what do you know? Um, and sort of all you want to do is uh, be critical. And I, I, I was really wary about that piece and I put a lot of, um, I wrote it quite carefully and with a lot of rewrites to, to make sure um, to make sure the tone was correct and make sure it was clear who I was blaming. Um, but the, the reaction to that was really like overwhelmingly positive from people um, within the industry from not only from Sheffield, I mean, I, I criticized PRs quite heavily and a lot of PRs actually came to me afterwards, not the, the owners of the PR companies, but individual PRs to say, you know what, you're, you're, you're right about, about the whole industry. Um, so I, I think it was a lot of, a lot of stuff we're talking about has been, um, an open secret for a while. Um, and, and this is kind of the opportunity to say it. Um, but I guess like in terms of my own writing, like be, having, um, having restaurants shut has been, um, I guess a, I guess useful for my own writing because it's a, it's really forced me to have a look at like what I've, what I've missed and what, um, kind of like the failures and the gaps that exist within my own writing. And like, obviously part of that is because, um, I guess I, I haven't really had an opportunity since I started writing to really, to really just look at my own writing and, and think about really what I want to do. But, um, especially because I'm writing for a publication, which only covers restaurants, but, mm-hmm. um, no, I, I think since the start of the pandemic, it's, I've been thinking, well, I, I really like privileged restaurants in in my writing, but that is just one form of, um, it's one, not just one form of what food can be, but it's, it's just one narrow form of what cooking for another person can be. Um, and there's a whole wealth of, um, ways of writing about um, about food, which may involve ca- exchange of capital, but often don't. Um, mm-hmm. Whether it's um, whether it's community kitchens, whether um, it's um, it's uh, what uh, in the case of um, Ruby Pizza Vittles about um, cooking in care homes. Um, I, I think that that. There should be a huge conversation about um, about food in prison, um, and um, in terms of school food, like we we had a big national conversation um, a decade ago, um, prompted by Jamie Oliver about what food in school should look like, um, and unfortunately, it was like kind of slightly hijacked by. Um, I know, a, 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 I think a lot of classism um, ended up coming into it, which was to its detriment. But um, mm-hmm. one thing, the conversation that we're having right now like, is about free school, um, free school dinners um, and um, the fact that the government weren't going to um, 
to have the program happen over the summer holidays. Um, and it was, it was it's really only through the intervention of um, of a, a footballer, actually, um, a, a young black footballer called Mark Rashford, who petitioned the government that the government's complete, done a complete U-turn on the, on the subject and will now um, implement um, free school meals over the holidays. But it's still a case of this will happen this summer, but this is really something that should happen um that should happen all the time um and um i guess it's it's a fear of mine that yeah it's great this is great that we're talking about it but um we can't just uh we really can't just talk about it for the length of the pandemic this has to be something that like just needs to become a permanent part of how we write about um how we write about um, not just food, but really anything, to be honest. Um, yeah. And um, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm trying to be optimistic, but like, I, I guess like it's, it's ingrained, it's, it's ingrained with you if you have, I guess, any sort of leftist politics that probably, um, probably the change isn't going to happen, but um, <laughs> you kind of keep having. You have to keep trying. I I feel yeah. like there's the, the for a period after the the election last year, I went. I was like completely despondent about about writing at all, and like very, I sort of very. I became very cynical about the um whether whether writing can um enforce any change at all, um, and um. I guess I'm feeling a little bit more optimistic about that now that I think writing can as long as it's part of a um as long as it's part of like a a, a big groundswell um and I think that's what's been really great about Bittles actually it makes you it's made me feel like um it's not just it's not just one person it's not just a few sort of food writers sort of um sort of speaking into the ether it, it is actually um it's really like a whole swathe of people um and, and i i feel like vittles has kind of achieved more i guess more change in in three months than like the entirety of my writing in the last two years um <laughs> so, so i i guess it's um i guess it, it it shows you like the power of being in a in a um in a coalition um so i i guess if i i think if we want to if we want to keep that change happening um and keep that energy i think we all kind of need to be on the on the same page and kind of pull it in in one direction um one direction collectively um because i don't think any of us are going to do it by ourselves absolutely um, and for you, is cooking a political act? Um, yeah, like it obviously is. Like, it's, it's not that like, <laughs> every time I make an omelette. Like, it's not, not like every time I make an omelette, like, I'm thinking, yeah, this is good practice. But um, <laughs> yeah, of course it is. I mean, like, um, I was thinking even. Um, one thing I wrote about recently uh, was um, 
the um sort of the conversations that were going on with sourdough bread um over here i don't know if the the same conversation was happening in in the us um kind of about yeah sourdough being this kind of middle class affectation um and over here like obviously you have class um class issues of your own in america but the class issues in britain are uh kind of like impenetrable unless you're um unless you grow up in them and even when you grow up in them you can't kind of see how absurd they are but it kind of like reduces class to like a set of like signifiers like your accent or where you shop or like what type of bread you use um and sourdough has become like um i I guess like a symbol of the middle class but i i I found these conversations like completely baffling um that like someone could say that someone who wanted to make bread for themselves um was kind of like uh performing um almost like some some kind of like uh becoming like a class traitor if they if they wanted to make like a, a, a loaf of bread um but like the the i think the the fact that people have had the had the time to cook again um in a way that they they haven't had before is like such a and it's, it's like such an obviously positive thing. Like, of, of course, it's a good thing. Like people, um, people should have the power to um, be empowered to, to, to learn about how to cook and, and how, how the food that they, they consume is made. And, and I, know, I hope that restaurants can be a part of um, not just, um, I feel like up to, to now, they've, I guess they've been kind of like gatekeepers or, or some of them have been like kind of gatekeepers of knowledge. Um, and what really, what I, what I think has been like, an, like an, a really obvious positive from um, what some of them have pivoted to is that I think a lot of them have been a lot more open with, with sharing things, um, with, with allowing people to... Um, allowing people to 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 make stuff at home to, to to give to make them i know for for example like my favorite restaurant in london um sells um sells their dough for a really cheap price um and that kind of removes like the big i guess like the the big labor obstacle people have with make with making um with making um, pastries or pies, but it, I mean, it still allows you to um, it allows you to uh, to do the cooking yourself, um, which which I think is a which is a, um, a really positive thing, and hopefully people will be a bit less reliant on um, on restaurants to outsource their labour to. Um, but yeah, like in, in terms of like cooking every day, like obviously everything you cook is is a is a really interconnect interconnect interconnected process of kind of who grow it, who who grew it, um, where it comes from, um, sort of the labour that uh, has gone into it before it before you start cooking yourself. Um, I think that. 
I, I think like one positive thing, another positive thing is like people beco becoming a lot more. Oh, oh well, maybe this is just my my sort of middle class foodie bubble, but people becoming a bit more aware of um, of the labour that has gone into those products. And, and I guess this is something that I've been trying to. I've been doing this for eight years to talk about tea, like to talk about where. Um, talk about where the tea in our cups comes from like we need to be having the same conversations about our food so it's been really great to be able to i know to get to get produce straight from people who are who are working with the land properly who are who are not um not just farming a homogenous um modified product that are using i know for example like to get flour which is like using heritage grains and um to, to get uh to get fish which has been caught sustainably and um to be able to have that again is um yeah really yeah really amazing thing um and yeah i just hope that uh it continues afterwards as well and that i know we can sort of shorten the shorten the supply chains um a bit more and and have restaurants as kind of a as a conduit of like open up opening up these things to us and to be a bit more transparent and not just um it shouldn't just be uh, us praising restaurants, but like the whole, the whole interconnected, um, the whole inter interconnected community. Um, yeah, I don't know what I'm saying, but that's, that's <laughs> kind of, kind of, kind of my, my uh, very um, unformed thoughts on that. But yeah, obviously, right. obviously it is. Well, thank you so much for taking the time again, um, Jonathan. Oh no, thank you, thank you so much for having me um yeah really really like a pleasure to be on and to be invited awesome.